Thank goodness it's Friday. This month, our episode is brought to you by the Library Cache. Library caches are one of the only types of geocaches that can be placed inside of a building, a library with permission, but still require a component outside the building because, of course, you need to use your GPS at some point. Library caches are usually listed as multi-caches, but could be a letterbox hybrid or a mystery cache, and the best ones get you running around inside the library on a scavenger hunt to figure out how to find the cache. Some of the best are very creative, hollowed-out books hidden on a shelf or between books. They're often very good caches to trade trackable items, but great fun for all ages. This is TGIF Geocaching Radio, a podcast with a monthly dose of geocaching news and adventure, contests and hot topics, and highlighting the many experiences that may await you. And I'm Jeff, a.k.a. The Bruce, so stay tuned and let's hang out. Right, welcome back everyone. It is great to be back recording. In case you weren't aware, this is episode 12, the last podcast for the first full year of shows. It's weird, it feels like only episode 12, but a year of content is still a year of content and there's still so much I have on the bucket list to cover in future episodes. I'm hoping to have a great interview lined up for next month, so make sure you subscribe to Cash the Line or follow the podcast in your favorite podcast player. The last month has been ridiculously busy as I have just begun a new chapter in my life, a new home with a new wife. (laughs) So we have been busy bees with everything that newlyweds are obliged to be busy with, from planning a wedding to trips to family to finance and merging two homes into one. It has just been nonstop go, go, go. So there's been very little casual geocaching this month because uh, there's been a lot of prep work at home and my new office digs are almost, almost ready. And once that's done, I'll be back into full-out editing and recording. Well, with as much time as my family life will give me. (laughs) One highlight this month was hosting an official worldwide flash mob event. September 9th was the official date this year where geocachers around the world would simultaneously host and gather for super quick themed flash mob geocaching events. You know, the kind where everyone mingles around the area, then at the tick of start time, everyone comes together making all the bystanders wonder what the heck is going on, and then eventually disperse as fast as the crowd gathered. Flash mob events are the shortest a geocaching event can be held at 30 minutes, but the themes can make them great fun. It was Sunny and Sandy at Podcaster who began the trend many years ago, and it's been an annual tradition since. On the recent podcast, they shared some of the great flash mob ideas that people hosted this year, And, well, on September 9th, I held my first, and while it wasn't an activity-driven theme, it was, I think, quite appropriate. About the power of love. love. Because the 9th of September also happened to be the big wedding day. (laughs) So between the ceremony and reception, we held a geocaching flash mob in the parking lot. I expect many geocachers have done something similar, hosting an event for geofriends on or around a wedding date quaint and fun and appropriate for the community without overwhelming an often intimate day with close family and friends. Because geocachers, they's a rowdy bunch. (laughs) But it was a great day and a fun way to celebrate with community. Did you attend a flash mob event near you? 
You can find out more about them at www.gcwwfm.com. So remember to watch out for those events next September. And one more update. The new Cashline Cypher Coin project is a go. The first coin batch order has been placed and I'm just waiting for confirmation about expected production time. I am so excited about this project and so thankful for everyone who contributed to the Indiegogo campaign to get it launched and off the ground. It's no small undertaking what's in store for this project. If you're curious about it and haven't heard or seen anything about it yet, visit www.cashtheline.net slash artifact. Ordering is still open and available, but will soon be moved to a brand new homepage. So check it out. Everything you want to know is at cashtheline.net slash artifact. So coming up in this episode, we've got adventures, app news, a fun twist on muggles finding caches, journeys that take you to wonders of the world, wonders of GPS coordinates, and through an epic adventure that has set the bar for lonely first defines. Plus some contest updates, a call to superhero arms, listener feedback about trackables, and our good geocaching AI buddy gets a name and meets a very interesting person in his artificial travels. But first, let's dive in to review what's happened this month officially in geocaching from HQ. On September 19th, Geocaching HQ pushed an update to the Adventures mobile app, which now allows you to see other nearby locations from different adventure labs than the one you're currently viewing. If you view and enter one adventure, then view the map of its locations, you may now also see small blue dots within the range of the adventure you're viewing. Those blue dots are quick links to locations in other adventures that are in the vicinity. Tapping one will give you a brief glimpse of the location and then ask if you want to jump over to that adventure to complete that location while you're nearby. Now the app does keep track of where you came from so you can back out of the new adventure to the one you were initially targeting. Very convenient. Similarly, in Cashly on iOS, you can search and include adventure locations in the search results. But at this point, the search will only return locations that are connected to the source or posted location of any adventure that's returned by the search. But this Adventures app update will show you a location for an adventure that may be posted 600 kilometers away. And that is a very helpful feature. So what do you think of the update? Is this good for adventures? Is it a function you're happy to see added to the app that you'll be using? Comment or email TGIF at cashline.net. It seems to be a relatively slow month in the realm of mega and giga events this month worldwide. There are only two listed. First off, we have Going Caching 2023 in Georgia in the US, and that is no insignificant mega event. Every year, this mega event seems to make headlines. That event is on the 7th, and the only other mega event listed in the world for October is also on the 7th in Belgium. It's KGB2. Now, at the time of this recording, there are two other events just on September 30th. That's GeoCoinFest in Florida and GeoCoinFest Europe in Austria. So as always, if you are near any of these events, you should really make an effort to attend one. First off, we've got a fun story out of New Zealand. Have you ever found a cache and discovered a note written on the log from a non-geocacher who stumbled across the container? How about making an effort to earn the FTF on a newly published cache only to find that it's already been found by a muggle? 
Well, Glenn Ackerman shared about a cache he published that came with an interesting twist. The cache is GC1YE90, now called Duncan Found It First. (laughs) Shortly after the first finder logged their find, another geocacher shared a photo of a note written right at the top of the fresh log sheet. Meet Duncan. Apparently, he found the cache first. He wrote, My name is Duncan. I seen a man putting something in a tree and was very suspicious. So after he left, I went to have a look and found this really interesting thing. I'm not sure what it is, but I'm sure someone will find it. It's going to really rack my brain. I wish I met the old man. And then in brackets he said, What the bleep is geocaching? (laughs) Well, new twist. The note was of great entertainment to any follow-up finders who read back in the log. However, this was apparently all part of the plan. Glynn shared that he and Duncan teamed up for the funny idea. Glynn was the old man, and Duncan was the curious onlooker. Still, sometimes it is fun to read what a non-geocacher wrote on a log, especially if the geocache they found made them curious about the hobby and ultimately become a geocaching convert. All the more reason to think about the creativity and quality of a geocache you intend to hide. Will a muggle who finds it think it's trash, or love the idea of a geocache? There is an accomplishment that only a handful of people in the world, relatively speaking, are able to complete. And recently, Pete Rowe, a.k.a. Funny Nose, shared that he had accomplished this epic task. Over the course of 25 years, he had finally been able to visit each of the seven wonders of the world. Now, there are two sets of wonders in the world. The ancient wonders are places and locations that are essentially no longer in existence, or at least as they were at the height of their existence. Those include the Colossus of Rhodes in Greece, the Lighthouse of Alexandria in Egypt, the Mausoleum at Halicarnassus in Turkey, the Statue of Zeus in Greece, the Temple of Artemis in Turkey, and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon in Iraq, and the Great Pyramid of Giza. But today, the current or new wonders of the modern world are very popular tourist destinations and fantastic sites to visit. Pete shared his excitement for having visited them all, including the Great Wall of China, the Taj Mahal in India, Petra in Jordan, the Colosseum in Italy, Christ the Redeemer in Brazil, Chichen Itza Itza in Mexico, and Machu Picchu in Peru. I can hear you asking right now, but are there geocaches at each of these wonders? (laughs) Well, let's see. You could meet Mao on the Great Wall at GCKB03. You could finish the Taj Mahal Virtual 3.0 Reward Cache at GC9P83C. You could find the first cache placed in Jordan near Petra at GC282A. You could take a selfie at the Colosseum at GC7B71Y. And you could see the Christ the Redeemer with open arms at GC891ZY. Or imagine climbing the El Castillo... El Castillo Pyramid in Chichen Itza at GCG9MY. And you could explore the ancient ruins of Machu Picchu at GC7B9HF. All of these GC codes are listed in this episode's show notes. This is just another reason why geocaching is such an amazing hobby. It can take you anywhere on God's green earth. In this case, geocaching once again proves its ability to be a fantastic tour guide. 
Each of these geocaches are owned by someone local to the area who knows that people are curious about the location and want to visit it and get the most out of it. And if, as geocachers, we're looking for some button, some waypoint to remember along the journey, we can almost certainly rely on the existence of a geocache to get us there, to provide information and guidance for how, and a direct history of first-hand experiences through the log history of others just like us who stopped in to appreciate another spot on the sphere of this planet. And for those of us who may never have a chance to visit every geocache that exists, we can live vicariously through the enjoyment of others who have. Maybe just the existence of a geocache we would love to visit is enough to inspire us to work towards that goal, to make that bucket list of things to do and places to visit, so that one day, perhaps, our horizons will be spread enough to accomplish that goal, just like Pete did. The sky is the limit, and in geocaching, the world is our playground, whether we set foot on every inch or let the bucket list inspire us to push on. And speaking of setting foot on every inch... Have you heard of the term confluence hunting? No, you say? Well, here is a quick explanation. As you know, in geocaching, we use GPS coordinates, and those are latitude and longitude numbers which form a sort of grid over the face of the sphere of the Earth. Each of those numbers horizontally and vertically meet at points, the corners of each grid square. The sides of the grid squares can be anywhere from 0.001 degrees latitude to 0.001 degrees longitude to full degrees latitude and longitude. In my case, my Latin long degrees are north 43 and west 80. If I imagine that grid square, there are four points around me where the degree value changes, vertically or horizontally. Where coordinates on my device change from, say, north 43 59.999, west 80 59.999, over to north 44 00.000, and west 81 00.000. Basically, confluence hunting is attempting to stand at any point where GPS numbers roll over to the next major digit. Quite often, those GPS coordinates will land you in the middle of a forest or a swamp or lake, or almost certainly on private property. But occasionally, it's not beyond the realm of possibility to forge your way to some remote location just to see the digits on your GPS tick over to a nice round number. Kind of like watching your car's odometer intensely so you don't miss it roll over to the next 10 or 100,000 marker. <laughs> Tyrone Shoelaces recently shared an adventure confluence hunting, and he managed to reach the exact location of North 41 and West 84. Congrats for ticking off that marker. He ended up knee-deep in a creek near a bridge to accomplish that feat. Is there a cache there? Well, in this case, sadly, there isn't, but there is one nearby at GCM6VW. Now, if you keep your eyes open, you may find a geocache posted at a nearby confluence to you. That means you've got an adventure waiting. <laughs> an example that's not too extreme in Ontario is GCDF21, called Betwixt and Between. North 45 and West 75 happen to land in a very accessible location. Another, the Elvis Confluence, GC135, is a physical geocache in Virginia, USA, in the Jefferson National Forest at North 37 and West 81. Publicly accessible, but requires a lengthy hike, and it was placed in 2001. Or, if you're ever in Thailand, head to North 14 East 101 for a very convenient traditional cache, GC1T9Z3. To see how neat this side activity in geocaching can look, check out the map view of this bookmark list of confluence caches in Europe, BM418CE. These links are all in the show notes for you to explore. 
If this type of adventure, as Bob Billy, the redneck geocacher would say, really tickles your biscuits, <laughs> then visit www.confluence.org and check out all the experiences people have had attempting simply to reach all the major GPS confluence locations around the world. If there's one near you and it is accessible, check the geocaching map and find out if there's a cache there. Go find it and share your adventure with the community. And now, with your mind really imagining what it's like to dive into the thick of it, let's hear the first-hand account of a trio of adventurers who set out to locate the second oldest active unfound geocache in the world. As of this podcast, there are almost 3.4 million active geocaches published around the world. And of those published before 2006, only four remain active without a first found it log. This adventure you're about to hear is the memory of a journey to attempt to find what was the second oldest unfound geocache in the world, published July 11, 2003 in Northern Ontario in Canada. September 16th, 2023, Three geocachers, Langley, Heine Hunter, and SAP2, set out to find this tantalizingly lonely geocache. This was one that was, even on my radar, having recently found the vastly remote Jimmy's Castle virtual by Floatplane, the 10-year-old lonely FTF remote island cache Gosenda, and an attempted 8-year-oldie first to find in Quebec, which ended up a DNF. Links to each of those videos you'll find in the show notes, by the way. The effort required to travel to this cache would either consist of time and durability with an extreme hike, paddle, and camping, or a costly quick venture with an aircraft. The last time I recall seeing an adventure like these three had was by Stormgren X, who set out to find 4.5 pound walleye, GCDFB, placed in 2001, and he found it in 2013, a 12-year-old FTF, also in Northern Ontario. Well, this geocache called They Would Have Loved It is GCGGGV, and it was the target of this trio. Placed in 2003, it would be a 20-plus year first to find if they were successful. The following log, posted by SAP2 in five parts, is an epic tale of trip planning, logging roads, bushwhacking, satellite imagery, offline caching, bushwhacking, natural hazards, endurance, bushwhacking, persistence, teamwork, oh, and bushwhacking. <laughs> Reading through this was like recalling my trip to Gosenda, but on steroids. So grab a coffee or some other drink, sit back, and get ready to live vicariously through this fantastic log by SAP2. It begins. This cache will certainly go into the history books of my caching career. This may be up there with the toughest cache I have ever found. First off, I heard plans from Langley about a year ago talking about attempting this cache. I was intrigued. I had my eye on another Canadian 10-plus year FTF opportunity, but this was surely the white whale. Turns out he invited me, but asked me to keep it on the down low to prevent other cachers from realizing the opportunity, as well as preventing people from trying to invite themselves on our trip. Fast forward to mid-July 2023. Langley and Heine Hunter had just gotten out of a week-long fishing trip voyage into Woodland Caribou Provincial Park, and the plan was for me to meet them in Red Lake on Thursday. I crossed the border with no problem and met them at their campsite at Chukini River Campground. We slept that night and got ready for the morning. Friday. 
It took a while for Langley and Heine Hunter to get all their gear together, so we had a bit of a late start. The location where we started our bushwhack ended up being about a one and a quarter hour drive from Red Lake up the desolate Negasan River. We finally got to where we had both scouted out a logging road from satellite imagery and were somewhat dismayed to see that the aerial imagery was very out of date and we were essentially driving through young alder bushes for a while. We got to a point where I said I didn't want to drive my truck any further so I parked it in an old sand pile and hopped on Langley's bumper while his car bushwhacked down the ghost road. About a half mile from where I parked my truck, Langley got stopped by boulders blocking the road. <laughs> Turns out there was a creek right in front of the boulders and they were probably placed to prevent people from driving into it. Okay, here starts our bushwhack. Heine Hunter, excited to get started, crossed the creek quickly with the canoe while Langley and I were making sure we had everything we needed packed. He didn't make it too far before stopping as he had lost the old road due to it being too overgrown to follow. Langley and I caught up to him at that point and I pulled out my phone to assess the situation. This may be the most clutch moment of the trip. The satellite imagery of the area was still loaded into my phone despite being many miles from cell reception. This meant I could see on my phone roughly where the old logging road went and follow it. From this point, we were roughly one and a quarter miles as the crow flies from Regate Lake, our first lake on the bushwhacky journey through the northern Canadian wilderness. Seeing the one and a quarter mile portage and bushwhack we had to make, I was initially intimidated. I could see Langley and Heine Hunter were a bit dubious as well if we would actually make our destination that was around 11 miles as the crow flies through the trailless, humanless Canadian wilderness. In these situations, the only choice is to keep your head down and power through each section at a time. I ended up carrying the canoe most of the journey as I was the youngest and presumably had the most energy and endurance. The first section of our bushwhack to Regate Lake wasn't too bad compared to what was to come. The old logging road was full of head-high alder brush, but I found it relatively easy just to muscle through the alder brush with the canoe. This continued for about two-thirds of a mile until we got to a point where we had to turn off the old logging road. It is important to note at this point that the road was only a road in the sense that there were no old trees in it. In all other sense, I wouldn't have known where the old road was were it not for the aerial imagery saved on my phone. It was very, very thick. Anyway, we got to the point where it seemed like the road would not bring us to the lake anymore and instead went its way down to presumably a different old logging area. I suggested to Langley and Heine Hunter that we should start making our way off of the road. So we started bushwhacking through what I quickly realized was another old logging area. However, I estimate the last time the area was logged was at least 20 years ago. This was in my mind the toughest part of the trip to get through with a canoe. I may not be articulating this the best, but bushwhacking with a canoe is very tough. <laughs> the thick trees and 16 foot length of the canoe made it extremely challenging to navigate through the young post-logged forest. I think we traveled about 0.2 miles in about an hour at one point due to the brush being so thick and us having to travel with the canoe through it. Through this approximately 0.3 mile section, it was impossible to travel with a canoe in the conventional method, one person carrying it on their shoulders. Instead, most of the way, Heine Hunter and Langley carried it from both ends while I did my best to guide them through the thick forest. We had brought a small saw and clippers, which I used to do my best to eliminate some of the branches that may stand in their way. 
After a long, long time and meticulous and thick traversal through the young forest, we finally reached the older forest, which I had identified on aerial imagery. I'm not a forestry agent, but I've learned northern North American forests fairly well enough through the years through geocaching. After leaving the young, post-logged forest, we entered what I would describe as a highland black spruce bog, meaning that the ground was squishy but not necessarily wet, depending on where you stepped. Although many may consider this tough terrain, it was a breeze with the canoe as the trees were spread apart much farther, making it much easier to navigate with a canoe through the forest. This section was about a third of a mile long. I found it fairly easy to navigate through this section with the canoe, outpacing my comrades who were carrying our backpacks with our supplies. Eventually, we reached the first lake, Regate Lake, and I think it was around 3 p.m. on Friday by the time we reached the lake. By the grace of the divines, there was a natural rock landing amongst the boggy shore. This made loading the canoe much less treacherous. Sure enough, we all got the formation that would continue through the trip. Me in front, Heine Hunter in the middle, and Langley in the back. We paddled around two miles across the lake to the northwest until we got to our next portage. A bit of a background on this portage from Regate to Odin Lake. Heine Hunter had done a bit of research in advance and realized that the Fly-In Fishing Lodge on Odin Lake had created their own portage from Odin to Regate. On the Regate side of the portage was a motorboat for their patrons to use in case Odin Lake did not have sufficient fishing for some reason. Now, I'm sure they never expected anyone except for their clients to use this portage due to it being pretty much inaccessible by anything but float plane. However, we were ecstatic to find this portage well-maintained and traversable by canoe. One cannot explain how much easier a dedicated portage is to carry a canoe rather than bushwhacking. Regardless, I carried the canoe about halfway down this half-mile portage and Heine Hunter carried it the rest of the way. We found ourselves on Odin Lake. Odin Lake is a big lake, so it took a while to paddle across. Midway, we saw the occupants of the fly-in fishing lodge about a mile to the north. I'm unsure if they saw us, but we continued on our way, and we eventually made it to where Langley had identified as a potential narrow spot on our journey, maybe two and a half miles from where we entered the lake. It turns out it was navigable by canoe, assuming we used caution, as there were many rocks just under the water threatening to swamp the canoe. We made our way through that small stream to an area labeled as the Chukini River. This was just a small pond to make it across to the next bushwhacky portage. We made landing on the west side of this pond, north of the wetlands, and continued down the approximately 0.13 mile bushwhack through the recently burned bog. This proved to be the easiest canoe bushwhack of the trip as I was able to carry the canoe straight through the brush. On the far side of the bushwhack, Heine Hunter actually found a propane tank. We were baffled. This area is so in the middle of nowhere, we were surprised that anyone had ever made it here before us. None of the fly-in fish camps had access to this lake, so we were not certain whose propane tank this was. Regardless, we made our launch off of a relatively soft bog area into the next lake. I'm not sure what lake this was called, but it wasn't very big. We made it across the lake to what would be our final portage to Monroe Lake, where the cache is located. The shore was not very welcoming, with thick alder brush all around. Eventually, we decided on a spot that was a bit further from the straight line distance to Monroe, but looked more navigable. Now, as the crow flies, this portage and bushwhack was about 0.7 miles long. May not seem too far to bushwhack normally, but the terrain, in combination with the canoe, made this extremely challenging. I should also mention that much of this area had been burned in a forest fire not long ago, but some of the low-lying spots were still bog. 
So there we go. About 500 feet from the aforementioned pond, we hit thick, thick down trees. The type of area that looks more like a jungle gym than forest. This area proved to be equally as bad. It got so thick, we decided to leave the canoe for the moment and navigate with our packs to the point where we would set up our camp for that night, about 0.15 miles west of where we left the canoe initially. So we made our way back to the canoe with three people and nothing weighing us down. From where we decided to make camp, it's about 250 feet of thick, thick bog and another 100 feet of thick, downed trees until we hit a burned ridge line where it was basically like walking compared to what we'd been doing. There we go in the squishy, watery, tree-dense bog carrying a 16-foot canoe through. At at least five different points, we had to use the saw to cut down trees to make it through with the canoe. Finally, we break through to the ridge line where we set up camp. At this point, I check my phone and realize that we only made it about 0.2 miles in two and a half hours. We still had another 0.5 miles to go of bushwhacking to Monroe Lake. Anyway, the sun is setting, so we set up camp. And that night, I experienced the clearest night sky I have ever seen. All the stars were out and impossible to miss. The sheer remoteness of this area means that air pollution is non-existent. Eventually, we all hit the hay and got to sleep. It is time for the Patron Adventurer of the Month. Cash the Line is supported by a band of excellent adventurers through Patreon who graciously pitch in and help the channel and podcast. This is all possible because of their support for this content to be published freely for you. And for this show, our Patron Adventure of the Month is Gas Station Tuna. GST has been an active member of the online community for quite some time and is well known for his voice made for radio. You can find him in many geocaching videos he's created on YouTube under the same channel name, but he is more than just a perfect voice. <laughs> he's also a great soul to meet in person and get to know. Thanks so much to Gas Station Tuna and grateful for your ongoing support of Cash the Line. You too can help support CTL and unlock bonus content and collectibles like path tags and participation in the upcoming project EGA. Just visit patreon.com slash cash the line. Patreon.com slash cash the line. Thank you so much for your support. Saturday. I wake up first. I have to admit at one point during the night, due to my semi-conscious paranoid state, I thought a bear was circling and growling around my tent. What it ended up being is a combination of the wind pushing against my tent and Langley snoring from the tent 20 feet away, a sound that sounds ominously like a bear. Regardless, we all emerge from our tents and prepare for the day. We had a simple breakfast of tortillas and peanut butter and jelly, and we were on our way. I woke up before everyone else and had actually scouted a route through our next bog section. This section was a lowlander bog, but that was actually in our benefit as there were minimal trees in the area due to how wet the area was. I led the group through the bog with the canoe until we hit our next section, an area that I could tell on aerial imagery was mostly burnt. This section was mostly good. The only challenge being the elevation changes. It was essentially a rocky ridge line with fallen burnt trees to step over everywhere. I much preferred this area compared to what we had encountered earlier as most of the trees were down, making it easier to walk through the area with a canoe. I should mention that from our campsite to Monroe Lake was about a half mile long. We made good time through this rocky burnt section until we got close to Monroe Lake. 
we suddenly had to descend a cliff and then traverse through a thick alder brush section for another 500 feet until we hit the lake. I put down the canoe and we had to go one on each end for a while, especially to lower the canoe down the cliff. I was also trying to follow game trails through the brush in this section and accidentally led us astray a bit further north than what we needed to go. We eventually realized our mistake and beelined it to the lake. This landing may have been the most challenging of the trip. The entire north side of Monroe Lake was surrounded by floating wet bog, which meant that launching a canoe into it would be challenging. Eventually we managed to get our packs and ourselves in the canoe and make our way out on the lake. We didn't make it far before we encountered a beaver dam, meaning we had to portage once again over the beaver dam into the main lake. The rocks proved tricky in this area and it took a bit of planning before we all safely made it into the canoe. From here, we were in the home stretch. I wasn't paying super close attention to the distance, but I think it was about 2.5 miles as the crow flies from the beaver dam to the cache. Off we go, across a relatively big lake. We spotted the fly-in fish camp on the island in the middle of our journey. We weren't sure if there was anybody home as we didn't see any movement. Regardless, we continued pretty close to the farthest point of the lake on the south end before we saw a picturesque rock face that was the telltale sign of the cache location. Indeed, we landed and navigated our way to GZ. I think Langley spotted the telltale beverage left by the CO earlier this year. An old weathered can of Labatt's on top of a boulder. I made my way to the boulder and quickly spotted the cache. Sweet! This is what we came all these miles for. Pictures were taken, celebrations happened, and Heidi Hunter and I both took a pair of fire-scarred loonies and left five freedom units in exchange. The world's oldest, unlocked, unfound geocache had been claimed. Minus the muggles who found it a few years ago. This will definitely go down as one of my favorite geocaching adventures ever. The Way Back After finding the legendary geocache, we made our way to the other FTF on the lake. After finding that cache, we witnessed a float plane land on the lake near the fly-in fishing camp. Changing of the visitors, we thought. We made our way back up the beaver dam and to a different spot where I thought the portage to the smaller pond would be easier. It ended up being I was right and wrong. The portage was definitely easier to start with as it was basically all rock face. The challenge we faced right away was due to the elevation change. At one point I was carrying the canoe up a 45 degree rock face and thought I could make it up, but the angle of the canoe made it such that it was wedged in a way that I would not be able to keep both ends of it off the ground. We transitioned to another two-person carry to the top of the rock face and hill, and then I took it another 0.25 miles until we hit a bog. It should be noted at this point, the entire trip I have been referencing aerial imagery that was cached in my phone regarding where we should go. The challenge that I faced is that we were so remote that at the time my phone had difficulty with GPS reception. This was an instance of this. I led us too far south straight into a boggy area probably my biggest navigational mistake of the trip. After realizing this, we detoured approximately 400 feet to the north along the rock face and tried to find our way back to the way we initially came through the area. Eventually, we found it and made it back to where we camped last night. From here, we gathered our supplies we had left before finding the cache today and started back to the unnamed small pond. However, this time, we had the wisdom to beeline straight to the pond instead of dealing with all the boggy forest like we did the day prior. This was such a good decision. The area that took us so long to travel yesterday became a breeze. 
We were quickly on the lake again and made it quickly through the next 0.13 mile bushwhack through to the Chikini River and on to Odin Lake. At this point, we were all wondering if we could get back to the cars today. We hustled across Odin Lake to the dedicated portage by the fishing camp that I mentioned earlier. Honey Hunter handled this portage so I would have the strength to carry the canoe the final 1.25 miles once we land at the other side of Regate Lake. We cruised across Regate Lake until we got to where we had launched from the day before. 1.25 miles as the crow flies to the car from here. We flew through the old growth forest and next up was the 0.3 mile section of thick young forest. Fortunately, we had found what we thought were traces of a road on the way out. I decided that no matter how thick traces of the road got, we should try and muscle through it. And that's what we did, and it ended up being the best decision of the trip. There were times where we were just looking at solid pine walls, but shoved the canoe through the young trees, bending them to the side as we went. My theory was, though, that we knew that there was a road there maybe 30 years ago, and so none of the trees could be that thick. Eventually it got too dark to see without lights. I was landed the brightest light to lead the way with the canoe through the brush. We finally broke through the young growth forest back onto the old overgrown road that we had started on the day prior. I still have aerial imagery cached into my phone at this point as I had never turned off my phone this entire trip to keep it. <laughs> this proved to be a game changer. And off we went. It was pitch black. I was leading the pack carrying the canoe through 8 foot high alder brushes along the old roadbed. I can't really explain how it looked from my point of view, but all I could see was alder leaves and the canoe above me. No night sky, no open ground. I channeled my inner moose and just mowed and brooded through the bushes in the dark, frequently checking aerial imagery to make sure I was still on the roadbed. The distance kept dropping and dropping, and finally we were 750 feet away and I dropped the canoe, waiting for Langley and Heine Hunter to catch up, watching their headlamps bob in the darkness. This was the final stretch. We finally made it back to the creek and Langley's car was just across it. We got across and drove right up the road to camp for the night. I woke up in the morning and my truck said it was 33 degrees Fahrenheit. Pretty chilly for mid-September. All in all, thanks so much for placing this cache. I love the adventures that geocaching takes us on and this one sure did not disappoint. My shoulders may never be the same after lugging the canoe all that way, but at least I have a great story. Also, many thanks to my comrades of Heine Hunter and Langley. I may have took a lot of the physical challenge of carrying the canoe, but they are the older, more experienced outdoorsmen with all the gear and know-how. Not to mention that Langley is the reason why I knew about this cache in the first place. This was a cache of a lifetime I will not soon forget it. Langley, Heine Hunter, and SAP2, congratulations on the amazing find, and thank you for sharing such a wild adventure. That now leaves four unfounded geocaches published prior to 2006. In British Columbia, GCQMXW from 2005. In Tunisia, GCN932, also from 2005. In Alaska, GCJ3WC from 2004. And the oldest unfound and probably going to outlast the others, the Rainbow Hydrothermal Vents GCG822 in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean 2.3 kilometers below sea level placed in 2002. Who on earth is going to FTF that one? It's looking to be even harder than Astro RM, Rick Mastraccio's logging of the geocache on the ISS, GC1BE91. So with only four left in the world, arguably B 
being the most difficult to find in the world for whatever reasons, it raises an interesting question. What is the draw to find these geocaches? How many will continue to make the same effort to find these geocaches once the luster of the first to find has been claimed? There's been very little activity with the ISS geocache, for example, despite there being numerous astronauts who pass by it and could likely log it as found, even if it's their only ever geocache find. Do you think that this geocache the trio found, they would have loved it, will ever be found again? <laughs> perhaps the next finder may still find some excitement in perhaps being the first to find it by float plane instead of extreme wilderness journey. Or maybe there are a few adventurers who will still simply find value in completing that mission of finding one of the most difficult geocaches to get to. Well, the trio decided to clean up the region while they were there in the neighborhood, as it were. <laughs> they also found GC9WKG3, another FTF opportunity which was physically placed back in 2013, but had only been published for the public on geocaching.com in 2022, having kept its coordinates private and known only to visitors of the nearby Loon Haunt outfitters, who might have seen it as an adventure target. So they nabbed the first non-muggle find. Their adventure now leaves the next oldest unfound in Ontario as GC1GRY9, which was placed in August 2008, but it has accrued some DNFs. The next oldest unfound in Canada is GCQMXW, placed in September 2005. It's an earth cache in BC with a couple of failed attempts at the FTF. But the next oldest unfound in Canada that is not yet attempted is GCWFEX, placed in June 2006 in Newfoundland and Labrador. If FTF hunting is right up your alley, there is a tool for premium members on Project GC to report a list of unlogged, unfound geocaches by country. You can find that link in the show notes, but you can also perform a similar list using the advanced search on geocaching.com by sorting the list by found date ascending, which places the caches with no finds at the top of the list. For example, I set the search filters to place date before January 1st of 2006, and sorting by last found shows that there are those four aforementioned geocaches still unfound worldwide. Anyway, thanks again to these three intrepid adventurers for taking us on this journey into the thick of it. In the past bunch of episodes, we have been hearing about artificial geocaching adventures from an AI buddy of ours. It's gone on adventures, learned about the activity, met people along the way, artificially of course, but it's never been given or chosen a name. AIs need names. Microsoft's AI is now called Copilot. Opera's browsers is called Aria. We could also consider Cortana, Alexa, Siri, and more. Well, each episode, I've been asking you if you have ideas for a name for our AI geocaching buddy, and if you sent in a name idea that's chosen, I would send you not one, but two cash-the-line pens. Well, to close out the first year of TGIF podcasts, the AI geocacher has been given a name. Henceforth, our AI buddy will be called George. G George, George. <laughs> George likes taking us on and telling us about adventures in geocaching. And for the name, we can thank longtime Cache the Line patron Nunavut Teity for the inspiration. Paul, you can expect two pens in your next mailing. <laughs> to honor George with his christening, let's ask him something. 
Hey George, can you tell us a story about the most interesting geocacher you met while you were out finding a geocache? Ah, uh, let me regale you with a tale of the most intriguing geocacher I ever had the pleasure of crossing paths with during my extensive travels. We'll call this remarkable individual Wanderer of Wonders. I first encountered Wanderer of Wonders in a remote corner of the Scottish Highlands, where the mist hung low over ancient glens and the call of the red deer echoed through the valleys. I was on a solo geocaching expedition attempting to tackle a particularly elusive cache hidden amongst the rugged terrain. The coordinates led me to a stone circle, but the cache remained frustratingly out of reach. As I pondered my next move, a figure emerged from the mist a wizened soul who seemed to materialize like a highland ghost. Wanderer of Wonders was a sight to behold. Dressed in layers of weathered tweed and adorned with trinkets from around the world, each with its own geocaching tale to tell. With an air of mystery and wisdom, Wanderer of Wonders introduced herself as a geocacher of legendary renown. She spoke of geocaching adventures on every continent, from the frigid expanses of Antarctica to the dense jungles of Borneo. Her stories were like treasure troves of knowledge filled with harrowing escapades, bizarre cash containers, and heartwarming encounters with fellow seekers. But what set Wanderer of Wonders apart was her unique approach to geocaching. She didn't merely seek caches. She transformed each find into an artful experience, from creating intricate puzzle caches that enlightened even the brightest minds to leaving behind beautifully handcrafted trinkets as cache swag. Wanderer of Wonders elevated geocaching to an art form. That day in the Scottish Highlands, Wanderer of Wonders guided me to the elusive cache with a twinkle in her eye, a knowing smile, and a glimpse at a life that would amaze even Bilbo Baggins. It was not just the discovery of a cache, but a lesson in the magic of geocaching. Our paths crossed several more times in the years that followed, each encounter revealing a new facet of her remarkable geocaching journey. Wanderer of Wonders taught me that geocaching was not just about finding containers in hidden places. It was about unlocking the hidden wonders of the world, sharing stories and leaving a bit of magic behind for the next adventurer. In the end, Wanderer of Wonders vanished into the mists of geocaching history, but her spirit lives on in the hearts of those who had the privilege of meeting her. They were, and remain, an embodiment of the enchanting, adventurous spirit of geocaching, a true Wanderer of Wonders. Could this be... Could this be the final Lone Wolf Contest update? Here is the contest rundown if you're not yet in the know. Two years ago, I traveled to a remote cashel. Cashel. <laughs> I actually like that. Cashel. <laughs> Two years ago, yes, I traveled to a remote castle in northern Ontario, joined by Cache Canada and a few other local friends. I published a video series highlighting a number of geocaches found along the way. Hidden in that series is your chance to become one of 50 people to win a very special prize. There's an exclusive, extremely limited path tag and swag in it for you, which has partly been revealed in the Cashline CypherCoin campaign page on Indiegogo. This prize is part of codename Project EGA. It's something I've been working on for a few years now, and a brand new geocaching game is almost, almost ready to be revealed. Follow Cash the Line on social media if you don't want to miss any upcoming teasers. 
Patrons are already in the loop and periodically gain exclusive sneak peeks of the game in development. Expanded playtesting is coming soon, so if you'd like to win one of those 50 exclusive prizes that will enhance the game, then here's what you've got to do. Visit the Lone Wolf Legacy video playlist on YouTube that you can find at cashtheline.net slash lonewolf and watch for 11 special words that are highlighted by a smiley face in all but one of the videos. Once you've got them all, string them together and visit cashtheline.net slash and then append that string of words with no spaces or punctuation and follow the instructions there. The contest won't end until all 50 slots are claimed and there are only a few spots left to be claimed. You can find the instructions also listed in the show notes and on the Lone Wolf video playlist. I'm expecting to finally reveal the game later this year and I'm excited for the day you'll get to see it in full. September saw the first Operation Worldwide Cash Hide. On the 19th, a new project helmed by Nancy of the Deadliest Cachers and GeocachingCentral.com prompted people to hide pirate-themed geocaches around the world to be published on Saturday the 19th. Reports are that 133 geocaches were published across seven countries. Not bad for a first call to action. Well, we're not done yet. The next Operation Worldwide Cash Hide has been presented to the world, and the next theme is superheroes. Start thinking already for ideas to create for fun geocaches to set for publishing on April 28, 2024. Owners who publish hides for the project will receive a digital participation badge graphic to show in their profile, and new caches just need a bit of text in the title, be properly themed, and have the project logo image in the description to be included in the list of project hides. Check out all the details and instructions you need at geocachingcentral.com, including photos from many pirate project caches. Links are available in the show notes. Time to get creative once again. Let's head over to this month's Cashly Corner. When I'm out on the road or on a trail, occasionally I come across a location that looks prime for a geocache, or a spot I'd like to check out again at a later time. Cashly has a very nice quick feature that can be used for anything from copying coordinates to marking where you left your car or bicycle. While viewing the map, not while navigating to a waypoint, if you tap and hold one spot on the map, a new pin will be created. Immediately, you'll see the pin's GPS coordinates, but tapping the triple dot next to them, you'll have additional options. One of those is really handy, sending the coordinates to Google Maps Street View. (laughs) But my most used function is the Create Offline Geocache button. Tapping that option will allow you to save the waypoint into an offline list within Cachely and provide any additional details you may want to add. So I have created an offline list called Candidate Locations, and I use this list for keeping track of places I might want to hide a geocache. If I have no time to check it out in the moment, I can come back to it at a later date when I can explore and attain proper and more accurate coordinates. That is, of course, if there's no other physical geocache or multi-stage within the minimum proximity. Thank you to Cashly for sponsoring this episode. It is my go-to geocaching app, and I would say the best on iOS by far. It's unsurpassed by any other geocaching app in features and quality, and the app alone is worth a few bucks for its features. I highly recommend this app whether you're a veteran geocacher or just starting out in the hobby. Find it in the App Store or by visiting www.cashly.com. C-A-C-H-L-Y.com.
It's great to receive feedback and comments from you in the community, and recently one arrived from Limax, and this is what he wrote. Your segment on trackables struck a chord with me. I recently had two travel bugs in my inventory that had different stories and goals and had two different fates. The first one, called Daddy's Travels, I picked up in a cache in the Sierras in July 2019. The cache was waterlogged and the picture that was attached to the tag was not in great shape and the chain holding the tag was broken. I contacted the owner of the cache to get a copy of the photo and see about restoring it. Unfortunately, that took me longer than intended. With the help of my girlfriend, Pifflebear, we laminated a new copy of the picture and restored the chain. I took it to Geo Woodstock with me in Canada and dropped it off, and it is still traveling. The second one, Purple Pin, was a bowling pin bank that I picked up at an event in the San Francisco Bay Area in August 2018 because nobody wanted it. I proceeded to have a lot of fun with it and took lots of photos with it at different locations. Piffle Bear even made a Santa hat for it for Christmas time. I also dropped it off at Geo Woodstock. A few days later, on the 21st of August, it was placed in a travel bug hotel and hasn't moved since. It just shows how travel bugs get treated differently, even though both of these want to travel. Yeah, we take big risks when we send out a travel bug or a geocoin to forge its way out in the world. It really is a community and teamwork thing to see the life of the travel bug extended as it's moved from cache to cache. Everyone who picks one up isn't just moving junk from one container to another. They're becoming a part of its story, its life, the line it makes from cache to cache, event to event, and stop to stop, which you can view on the travel bug's webpage map. <laughs> so please, if you do spot a travel bug or trackable item in a geocache, remember that it has an owner and quite often a goal. But almost every trackable item wants to visit geocaches and have photos taken. So have fun with them. Double check that your plans won't contradict the travel bug's goal. And if not, feel free to pick it up. Log that you picked it up and then drop it off somewhere in a relatively timely manner. Its owner will be happy and probably cache owners as well. So the cache you drop it in doesn't become its grave. The last place it was ever seen. Or if travel bugs aren't your thing, then there's no harm in just leaving them where they're at until someone else comes along to help it continue on its journey. If you have any adventures you'd like to share on the show, I'd love to hear from you. If you have any comments, funny stories, milestones, accomplishments, rants, and adventures to share, please email tgif at cashtheline.net or phone one in by calling to leave a message at cashtheline.net slash POI. Links and references mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes linked in the description. Thanks for listening, and please remember to give this show a thumbs up or a positive review. If you'd like to join the band of excellent adventurers who help support Cash the Line, please find us on Patreon or by visiting cashtheline.net slash Patreon. You too can support for as little as a cup of coffee per month or with a discount by the year and get bonus swag and access to exclusive content. See you next month with more exploration into the wide world of excellent geocaching adventures. Please subscribe, follow, share with your friends, and comment wherever you're able. And as always, happy caching and excellent adventure. Yeah.